Welcome to Cato Audio for March 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, former journalist and current cannabis entrepreneur Jim Higdon discusses why he sees the best end to federal cannabis prohibition in the Farm Bill. Jeff Singer and Nita Farahani discuss why the FDA stands in the way, still, of quick and effective COVID-19 testing. And Stephanie Slade of Reason discusses fusionism and why it still matters. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. It has been a whirlwind year, to say the least, and schools were not immune and largely still are not immune uh, to the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. To talk about uh, education uh, in this context, in this moment, I'm speaking with Neil McCluskey. He directs the Cato Institute Center for Educational Freedom and Carrie McDonald. She's an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute and author of Unschooled. So, uh, Neil, first to you. Schools went virtual. Nobody really had built this into their plans. And so uh, a little grace is due to uh, school administrators and teachers and uh, and, and parents for uh, the difficulties that have been faced. But here we are almost a year later. How have things changed? Have things improved? Well, uh, certainly we saw at the beginning, so you go back to March 2020, it was really a crash course on online education for just about any you know, in-person school. There were already online charter schools, there was online content, but you know, most people were in, if they were in school, they were in a brick and mortar institution and suddenly everybody is online and it w- didn't go well for many people. I, you saw charter schools and private schools. Uh, they transitioned fairly well to getting things online and moving on with teaching their curriculum. Um, public schools had a much more difficult switch. Uh, some of that is just because public schools are big and they're bureaucratic and it's hard to get things going. Uh, there were certainly problems, though, if you're talking about a rural district or an urban district where a lot of kids didn't have connectivity. Um, to the internet, at least not adequate to have their instruction delivered to them online, usually by watching a teacher streaming a lesson they would have done in person anyway. Uh, and so it certainly you know, wasn't the immediate fault of the district necessarily that they had kids who couldn't get online. The problem is that we, you know, we get to the summer, so we, you know, you kind of give a pass to anybody who, uh, when suddenly there's a pandemic, they got to switch to a whole new medium for delivering their uh, service, Um, even though we saw the private schools, the charter schools certainly doing it better. And of course, homeschoolers were already prepared to teach at home, but we have a summer to get ready and you see lots of school districts that are not able to get their act together and they keep sort of pushing their goals, you know, moving the goalposts, saying, well, we're going to be ready for in-person or at least hybrid education where you could get some in-person instruction uh, matched with some at-home instruction. And they, they, you get closer and closer to the school year and more and more of them saying, no, we just can't do it. And you have a lot of teachers and their unions saying, there's basically no way to make these schools safe. Um, 
you should probably spend lots of you know, millions of dollars on the schools uh, to put in new air filtration and things like that. But in the end, you probably won't be able to make it safe anyway. So we're not going to go back. And it's also the case that, you know, we, we saw dips in uh, significant dips in the uh, transmission of COVID-19. And then we saw a rise in COVID-19. And so lots of parents also got scared about sending their kids back. And so now we're in a position where we've been really since September of constant problems of nobody knows what their school district is going to do. School districts trying to open in person. Many teachers unions and many districts saying, no, you cannot do that. We will not send our teachers there, no matter how much you've done to make the schools safe. We've had the CDC and lots of studies saying it's safe to go back in person, but we can't get districts in many cases to commit to doing that largely because teachers are concerned, but we also have to realize that in many districts, it's only about a third of parents who say they feel comfortable sending their kids back. And then the one thing I would add that's in the background of all of this and should be in the foreground is that if we had systems based in school choice and educational freedom, instead of everybody, the norm was you pay for public school and that's where you go. If we'd already had school choice in place, those parents who wanted something that was online because they felt safe with that could get it. Those people wanted something in person because they, they felt that's what their child needed. They could get that. Um, but we don't have school choice. So we've been stuck in these battles where no matter which side you're on, you know, you're, you're fighting for either what you think is your life or your child's life. And we shouldn't have to fight like that. Carrie, uh, this event, uh, COVID-19, has focused parents' attention in a way that it's never been focused before on the quality of education that young people have received. And again, I, I want to stress that everybody's due a little bit of grace uh, in, in the transition away from in-person education. But what has been the response of parents? How have they reacted to all of this and and have they made different decisions? Right. Well, I mean, I think the school closures have really empowered parents in unprecedented ways. Um, for the first time, in many cases, parents now have the reins of their children's education uh, and are looking more more clearly at what are what's working, and what isn't. I think, you know, what we saw with remote learning last spring was for the first time, families may have had a glimpse of what their children were learning in classrooms or what they weren't learning in classrooms. Uh, and many of them said, hey, we can do things better. Uh, so what we've seen already this fall is a more than doubling, for example, of the independent homeschooling population from just under 2 million pre-pandemic to now close to 5 million independent homeschoolers, parents who have removed their children from a public or private school to educate them themselves. Uh, and, and similarly, we're seeing an overall exodus uh, from public schools into private education options. Uh, the Associated Press and Chalkbeat analyzed data finding that in 33 states, there has been a decline in public school enrollment this academic year. Um, and the additional 17 states uh, data hasn't come in, but the expectation is similar. Uh, 
decline, drop in public school enrollment as parents are looking for alternatives. They're not happy with uh, the remote schooling their children are receiving. They don't like the uncertainty and unpredictability of school closures and then reopenings and back and forth. Uh, and they're looking for other options. So we're seeing, again, this increase in uh, homeschooling in many of these states, private education, private schools have been able to stay open for in-person learning in ways that public schools haven't been. Uh, here where I am in Boston, Massachusetts, uh, the Catholic schools in the city of Boston have seen an upswing in uh, interest and enrollment since the schools decided to delay reopening last fall and, and have not reopened fully for in-person learning. Uh, so you're seeing a trend there. Uh, and I think, again, parents are now back in the driver's seat. So even when schools fully reopen, I think we're going to see a lot of parents realize that they um, want to have more influence over their children's education, that they um, that they do feel more empowered to decide what the right learning environment is for their kids. Uh, and I'm not sure that they all will rush back to those district schools as a result. Neil, speaking as a parent of uh, two small children, we sent our daughter to a pandemic pod preschool. And uh, one of the key elements of that is that it's not regulated as a school. Uh, and, and so I wonder, uh, has the pressure to move towards school choice or increase flexibility, uh, has that uh, improved from your perspective, Neil? Well, by improved, you mean has pressure increased to allow people more options and more flexibility in how education is delivered, maybe even at the public school. Uh, we certainly uh, see evidence of that. So last I checked, um, there are 17 states now that have new school choice proposals to either expand existing programs or to create new programs. That is almost certainly uh, driven largely by people realizing as a result of COVID that even if they've you know, paid for an expensive house in a good school district, you cannot have one size that fits all. And they realize, look, we need to have options. So I think that one of the uh, pieces of evidence that this pressure is increasing is that we have, see lots of school or states working to expand school choice. Um, we also see pressure in kind of a different direction. So school choice is ideal, but you know the federal government has required that states for their public schools have uniform standards uh, and uniform tests for all schools, and they still assess schools and will punish some schools based on how they do on those standardized test scores. And there's been a big movement to remove at least those punishments uh, as a result of COVID. So uh, the Trump administration and Secretary DeVos, they waived the requirement to give those standardized tests in the 2020 school year. And there's a big movement among, you know, there are union people, there are non-union people, libertarians, lots of different people also saying, look, we should lift uh, at least the, ram, uh, the, the ramifications for how you do on these tests in the 2021 school year. So that's also good. School choice is the ideal. We want people to be able to choose an entire educational package that's best for them. But within public schooling, that is also a sign that COVID-19 has at least temporarily made people realize it doesn't make sense to have these sort of bludgeon 
uniform, federally driven measures of success because you realize there's so many factors involved in just what is the school doing. Lots of things happen outside of what the school does that affects what the school does, what it, that affects the learners that you're not going to capture in those tests. Carrie, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to follow on what Neil was saying about school choice. One of the um, one of the things that I've noticed in talking with a lot of parents is a growing support for school choice policies. Many parents either never really thought much about school choice policies, or you know thought that they were sort of politically driven, or um, you know didn't think they were relevant to them. And during the pandemic, I think a lot of these families are realizing, wow, you know, why don't I have access to some of these dollars? to decide uh, where my children should attend school or use these supplies and these use these dollars to purchase supplies and resources or um, use them towards tutoring and so on. So more and more parents becoming receptive to school choice. And the data are backing that up. A real clear opinion research survey from this fall discovered uh, growing support for school choice policies up 10% since last spring to 77% of respondents saying that they uh, have a favorable view towards school choice mechanisms. Uh, so, uh, Neil and uh, Carrie, feel free to jump in on this. There have been some, when you talk about the pressure that has been faced by uh, public schools, there has been some pressure on uh, governors and uh, state officials to make sure that nobody opens if certain schools can't open. Yeah, I'll say that that is, I mean, it's difficult to pinpoint exactly, well, anybody's motives, but the motives in these cases. So uh, the most uh, famous one or infamous was in Montgomery County, Maryland. It happened during the summer, if I recall correctly. And private schools had done everything they needed to do to prepare themselves to open. You know, they, they, uh, moved the classrooms to larger spaces. They put in the filtration systems. Uh, they, uh, you know, prepared, they cleaned everything. They prepared for the nightly cleaning. They did everything they were supposed to do to get ready to open. And sort of at, almost at the final hour, uh, the sort of chief health uh, official in Montgomery County said, no, sorry, you, you can't open. Um, it's just too dangerous. And there was a major outcry because these private schools had done everything they needed to do. They were consistent with the CDC guidance, which, by the way, is said really since March, if you follow the right guidelines, you can you can safely open in person. They'd done all that. And they said, this doesn't seem quite right. And what really made them concerned was this official said that, well, I'll relook my decision what turned out to be the day after count day, and count day is when the public schools count how many students are there, are part of public schooling, uh, and then they get paid, they get money from the state based on that number. And they said, well, th this seems like it was trying to do is keep people out of the private schools so that we can goose our count day numbers. Now, I don't know that we can say that that was the goal with any certainty. If I recall, this may have also been like the 15th of the month. So that's also a number you could pick as saying, well, it's a number that just seems like it makes some sense, not just because you want to help the public schools. But in California, we had the same thing where the rules say, well, not only can't public schools open if you don't meet our guidelines, 
private schools can't either, even if you're just in an area which has a certain concentration of, of the virus. And people think, well, but see, that seems like it's really trying to punish the schools that have done the work to get ready to open. Again, we don't know that that's the case. It could be that people are legitimately concerned that if you have too high a concentration, that no school is safe. Um, but this is a problem of political control and government control over education at this point, just broadly, beyond just the public schools, where it seems like you may do the bidding of the unions or others with a lot of power, the school board's administrations, to try and keep alternatives that are working for people or would work for people at bay. You regulate them, you tell them that it's too dangerous, and it gives people good cause for concern, even if we can't prove that the motives are bad. Carrie? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing the pandemic response and the shutdowns have um, brought to light is the political hypocrisy in a lot of cases. And in California, for example, Governor Newsom came under a lot of pressure earlier this fall when he sent his children back to open private schools in Sacramento County, where he lives, uh, while most schools, including schools in that public schools in that county, remained closed for in-person learning. And I think a lot of parents are increasingly frustrated and angry um, at this discrepancy and uh, and are wondering, you know, why is it safe for these private schools to open, but these district schools aren't? And, you know, we could talk a little bit about why that might be. I think teacher union influence is a big part of it. Uh, speaking of teacher union influence, when the vaccines began to be rolled out almost everywhere, teachers were among the highest priority uh, people to receive them. And and to the extent that you're trying to reopen an economy and to the extent that children in physical school uh, makes it easier for parents who are also workers to make plans, I can get behind that to a certain point. The research has shown that um, teachers aren't under any more risk than any other occupation uh, from schools reopening. And in fact, we've found that schools aren't major super spreaders of COVID-19, that private schools and um, certainly the results coming out of Catholic schools have shown that schools can open uh, safely and successfully, uh, even without vaccinations. So, you know, I think it's up to individual states to decide uh, who gets priority uh, for the vaccine. Yeah, I think the concern is really the goalpost moving. So at first we were being told by many school districts, well, we won't, teachers won't return and we won't have in-person education until we have uh, the right measures in place. And those are distancing, masks, and air filtration systems. And then you saw schools and districts around the country put those things in and then they're being told often by their school uh, or their teacher union that well no now it has to be those things plus vaccination of teachers and you see you know like you said in many states the teachers are prioritized it's not every state it does vary from state to state but they're typically prioritized and then we've seen for instance in Fairfax County where the union which is really more of a professional association um but they said well no we really can't have everybody return in person until all teachers and all students are vaccinated. And it was this constant goalpost moving that I think especially frustrated a lot of parents, especially when they could look at those private schools where it's about two thirds of kids in private schools have been going in person since day one. And private schools generally have less money 
than the public schools. So they did all these things to be safe. And for the vast majority of them have stayed safe. And there's been no evidence of any sort of um, higher infection for students or teachers as a result of being open. They see that they've done that and say, why can't my school district, especially a rich one like Fairfax County, provide me the same thing that these private schools in the, you know, maybe two blocks from me have been doing since September. How much money have schools saved in uh, this pandemic? It makes sense that you would have to buy extra equipment for uh, teachers to be able to deliver education to some in distance learning environment. But it seems to me that uh, the education system, the K-12 system, should have been able to save a huge amount of money uh, during this pandemic. Is that the case? Um, I haven't seen a whole lot of estimates. I feel like I saw one a long time ago that honestly, I don't remember. But at least anecdotally, we see evidence of school districts not trying to save money. So uh, again, we'll talk about Fairfax County, Virginia, which is one of the wealthiest counties in the country. And rather than save money, for instance, on their bus drivers and their busing service, they said, we are going to run buses on their routes without picking up kids. And we'll call it you know, practice and development and, you know, professional, uh, you know, keeping our, our skills sharp and things like that. And the constant cry we've gotten from school district, of course, is we need a whole lot more money. Um, and certainly, you know, a lot of them did upgrade their HVAC systems, which doesn't cost nothing, which is why it's so galling to many people to then be told, oh, but the teachers still aren't coming back because, well, we really have to wait till they're all vaccinated. So, intuitively, you would think they saved a lot of money, but it's certainly possible that they did have extra costs. And we've seen examples of school districts that keep doing things that they don't need to do, which is going to cost them money. And certainly the message has been, oh, we need just gobs of additional dollars, which is why we're seeing, in fact, the you know the, the head of the American Federation of Teachers, Randy Weingarten, so the AFT is the second largest teachers union uh, in the country. She visited with um, President Biden, not long. First, she visited with the vice, or with, the, with the president's wife, who is a member of the National Education Association, the biggest teachers union. And then she said she met with, uh, sec- or with President Biden and said, look, we can't open schools until you pass this $1.9 trillion relief package, which has something like $170 billion for education. Until that happens, there's no way we can return to school. So it seems like they're using this as a way to say, ah, we just don't have any money after after COVID. And so you've got to send us truckloads of cash or or we'll just be bankrupt and can never open again. Given the way that uh, parents have been focused on education like uh, like never before, parents of school age children, and uh, given the reticence that uh, teachers unions have shown for uh, getting behind uh, school reopening, it, I hope constantly that maybe this is the end or at least uh, the the time for a major restructuring of education in the United States with a diminished influence of unions. Am I wrong to, to think that that's likely? 
I think that's very likely. I think the longer schools stay closed and teachers unions squabble with district administrators over reopening plans, parents are going to look elsewhere, uh, particularly if this is going to linger past this academic year. I think parents are realizing that their children in many cases are not thriving with remote Zoom schooling. Um, They're dissatisfied with the unpredictability and the back and forth between districts and unions about reopening plans. And I think that they, again, feel more empowered to take control and realize that they can do it better. I think part of that, too, is that we're seeing um, a lot of growth in education entrepreneurship. So new learning models emerging. We've talked previously about pandemic pods and micro school networks that are growing and uh, attracting more interest from parents who realize, again, that they can collaborate with others uh, to facilitate a curriculum or to um, hire an instructor to lead a curriculum in their in their in their homes or in um, neighborhood spaces. Um, The Wall Street Journal reporting that Americans are now starting new businesses at the fastest rate in decades. Uh, And I think that that is also trickling into uh, education as well with increased um, online learning opportunities that are much higher quality in many cases than the district remote schooling. So uh, it's not that remote schooling or or online learning is inherently um, lower quality. It's really finding the right and the best uh, quality online learning learning programs for your particular child, which, again, just the nature of one size fits all district schooling, whether remote or in person, uh, just can't provide. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to disagree with Carrie in the short term and agree in the long term. Uh, Education Next came out with some polling, uh, which Education Next, a journal comes out of Harvard. And it's some polling, I think. Uh, I don't know, it's probably the end of January, that actually showed approval for teachers unions has ticked up a bit. And what we almost always see is, and at least in polling, people tend to associate the unions with the teachers they know. And people tend to like the teachers they know and think, well, the union, you know, it's kind of nice because it represents the teachers that I know who are nice people. Um At the same time, we are seeing this increase in support for school choice because people recognize they've got to have options, even if they're not ideological about it. They're like, look, I got to have options. I can't have another time where something happens and my kid is trapped in education that doesn't work for them. And the way that unions will be diminished is when public schooling is diminished because unions thrive when there is a monopoly provider because they are a monopoly on labor. It's best for the unions when they just have one monopoly employer they negotiate with. And it's easy for that employer. It's like, oh, I don't have to negotiate with a bunch of people. I just go with the union. So parent support for school choice goes up. School choice expands. That degrades this monopoly that people deal with. It's usually their district, but sometimes it can be their state. Um, But you know, most of the control is still, or much is still at the district. So you break down that monopoly, the unions start to lose power. Even people like them, they start to vote with their feet. And I think that's what's really going to cause a a diminishment of the unions, uh, of union clout, is people just going somewhere else. And they're going to tend to choose schools that aren't unionized because they want schools that can quickly respond to their needs. And that's one of the things we see public schools definitely not doing under COVID, is not quickly responding to different people's unique needs. So in the short term, I don't see the evidence yet that 
unions are unpopular. Although I should also say this polling probably took place before only really in the beginning of February have we seen a huge uptick in people at least expressing anger at unions. But in the long term, I think the unions are in big trouble because they just don't they don't survive when people have choices. And that's what we've seen in the private sector is private sector unions are are very weak, especially relative to public sector unions, because they make things not competitive and they kind of kill themselves. Yeah, Neil, I think you and I will agree with that. I think it's not necessarily the parents are opposed to teachers unions uh, or their district administrators. I think that they are simply wanting something better for their kids and and they're just not going to put up with this any longer. So I'm not sure that there's animosity towards the unions. I think you're right. It's more just uh, they're they're like you said, voting with their feet and going elsewhere to just avoid this back and forth and this uncertainty. I'll also add to the competition piece, which I think is interesting. Researchers out of Brown University last fall found a correlation between teacher union strength and school reopenings. Other research has uh, found the same thing, including Corey DeAngelis, who's also an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, finding similar correlation. Um, But the Brown University researchers also discovered that in counties with a large number of Catholic schools, that, again, were more likely to reopen for in-person schooling, uh, those public schools in those same counties were also more likely to reopen or stay open uh, as a result of sort of that competition from the private sector. And and so I think that Neil is absolutely right, that we're going to continue to see more competition, more free market solutions uh, and more options for parents in the months to come. Go ahead. I was just going to add that that is reflective of Uh, Research we've seen about public schooling generally set aside COVID-19, 25 out of 27 studies, I think it is, that have looked at whether more private school competition leads to public schools getting better. 25 of 27 studies have found they do. So competition we know works even without COVID-19. All right. Neil McCluskey directs the Cato Institute Center for Educational Freedom at Kerry McDonald's, an adjunct scholar and author of the book Unschooled. You can follow all of our work on educational freedom uh, in this pandemic and beyond at our website, cato.org. By all means, legalize cannabis, but how best to do so without needless regulation? Jim Higdon is a former journalist and current cannabis entrepreneur in Kentucky. He says the Farm Bill, that massive piece of so-called must-pass legislation, is the key. We spoke for the Cato Daily Podcast in February. We make USDA-certified CBD products here in Kentucky. Um, What gave us the opportunity to start this business is uh, the Farm Bill changing the definition of hemp to only be um, any cannabis plant with a THC uh, level of below 0.3%. So that was a radical change in definition, and that brought out a whole section of uh, the cannabis plant um, out of the Controlled Substances Act jurisdiction and put it under the control of the the, uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture, legalizing the hemp plant once again. Um, And... And this this THC level thing becomes very important because 0.3% is in the sub-basement of THC levels, but it's not nothing. And that uh, 0.3% THC threshold really opened the door for 
uh, cannabinoid hemp production uh, like we uh, use for our CBD products at Cornbread Hemp. Um, never really happened before. I was, uh, as a cannabis journalist and cannabis book author in the space in 2013, 2014, when the first farm bill passed, um, I was on the front lines watching all this happen, or I guess in the bleacher seats. Um, no one, or at least I, had no concept of uh, cannabinoid hemp production, CBD oil, uh, as a as a market then um, in 2013, 2014. It was only after the passage of the first farm bill that uh, cannabis geneticists went to work on uh, creating strains of cannabis that were legal by the THC threshold standard. So the farm bill opened the door because it was a non-zero percentage of THC that was allowable in hemp? Right. It was a uh, 0.3% is in the sub-basement of, th of THC levels, but it's not absolute zero. So uh, cannabis went from 100% illegal to 99.7% illegal. And that uh, hemp-derived THC um, and other cannabinoids, when when Congress defined hemp only by its THC threshold, that legalized all the other cannabinoids that the cannabis plant produces. Uh, and, and the next on the list of dominant cannabinoids after THC is CBD. And geneticists in the cannabis space went to work creating strains of cannabis that essentially flipped the ratio of CBD and THC so that there was a high levels of CBD and very low legally compliant thresholds of um, of THC, and that created the CBD oil industry, uh, what seemed like overnight. So by 2015, there were companies here in Kentucky and elsewhere in America making uh, a whole lot of CBD oil, and uh, consumers and customers were, were lining up to get it. Now, the market for CBD products, or I suppose, uh, as you would say, cannabinoids that are not THC, uh, that derive from the, the cannabis plant, it's been described as the Wild West. Correct. And and that is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that is because there is almost no regulation on it whatsoever? Well, you, uh, it's correct to say almost no regulation. It's, the CBD industry thought when with the passage of the 2018 Farm Bill that the FDA would come in behind after legalization and uh, issue regulations in 2019. And a lot of CBD companies' projections were based on that. Uh, larger retailers, uh, groceries, pharmacy chains, they won't deal in uh, CBD oil, ingestible CBD products until there's FDA regulations. The CBD industry anticipated those regulations coming in 2019. Those regulations never came. Uh, 2020 came and went with uh, the same thing. No CBD regulations passed. Of course, the FDA in 2020 had its uh, eye on, the, on another problem. And so we're entering 21 with a similar time frame. It doesn't look likely that the FDA will issue regulations this year as it remains focused on vaccine rollout as its priority probably should be. Uh, so um, we're in a world where there are no uh, baseline regulations for CBD products. What we did to solve this problem is we worked to get our our products certified organic by the USDA um, organics program, which has a very high standard, uh, well above what any standard the FDA would end up issuing regarding uh, um, dietary supplements, if that's where, where it goes. But the uh, USDA organics program has a very high standard to ensure there's no contamination in any ingredient along the supply chain and that all the labels and, and, uh, and information is accurate. Okay. So with all that as a backdrop, 
despite the fact that your business is uh, built on CBD products that have very low THC uh, in them, you uh, are an advocate for the ending the federal prohibition on marijuana. In fact, also a lot of states have prohibitions on marijuana as well. Uh, so in terms of strategically trying to get from here to there, uh, you and I had a discussion a while back that you thought, and I thought this was very interesting, the using the, the, the farm bill itself as the vessel through which a steady legalization of essentially THC could occur with while also avoiding a whole lot of regulation that a lot of federal agencies would like to put on this. Sure. So for generations at this point, advocates in the cannabis space for legalization, uh, marijuana advocates had left the hemp advocates alone. The vote hemp people, the the uh, the people involved in just regulating at the what the, what they called at the time industrial hemp, which is no longer uh, a term. Um, as the industrial has been dropped. But advocates for industrial hemp and advocates for marijuana were essentially separate. Um, and they didn't get in each other's lane. But now that hemp is legal, and we, uh, the business that I'm in is on the legal hemp side of, of this, uh, you know, this wall between legalization and non-legalization, uh, it seems easier to legalize full cannabis uh, by pushing on the hemp side um, because of all the pitfalls that may be associated with um, how states have gone about legalizing a medicinal and recreational cannabis uh, when you try to do that at the federal level. Primarily, I think also as a former journalist, uh, passing a standalone legalization bill just seems impractical and improbable in a dysfunctional Congress to pass any sort of standalone legislation. So having a, a big uh, must-pass, must-move bill like the Farm Bill to tuck a provision, a one pager inside of this, when the entire prohibition on cannabis uh, dangles by one line in the farm bill that restricts the THC level of hemp, you change that THC level or you eliminate it entirely, then all cannabis is legal. The only thing is that we just have to start calling it hemp. So let me make sure I understand the strategy of legalization correctly, and that is raise or eliminate the cap of THC that is uh, placed on on hemp products over time or or immediately. Yeah, over time or immediately. Either these either these are an effective uh, 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 end game. Um, right now, it's so it's about uh, changing the definition of the word hemp as the federal government understands it to be. Uh, hemp, as the federal government understands it to be, is legal. It's not under the jurisdiction of the Justice Department. It's under the jurisdiction of the USDA. So n currently, the definition of hemp is any cannabis product with a Delta 9 THC level not exceeding 0.3% by dry weight. Um, all we have to do is raise that. All we have to do is raise that number. Um, and in the banking bill in the last session, uh, Senator Crapo of Idaho proposed raising that level to 2%. And uh, Senator Crapo is one of the most conservative senators in the Senate. Uh, Idaho is one of the most conservative states in the nation. If they're willing to give us 2%, we should take five. There was a, uh, I guess you'd call it a pot vaping scare, uh, maybe a couple of years ago, where uh, people who were purchasing will be generous and call them gray market products, uh, that is vape cartridges that had THC uh, in them, uh, but some genius decided to use the 
uh, as the carrier of that THC uh, vitamin E oil that when vaporized and inhaled uh, causes some pretty severe lung damage or can and ca cause some really serious problems. And so uh, a lot of people were using this to make the case that uh, one, vaping is bad uh, and two, uh, legalizing marijuana is bad. Well, vaping may in fact be bad. That's not my place to say. Um, it's in, in more than just the vitamin E, I should say, uh, there's also the risk of um, bad disposable vape cartridges uh, could cause heavy level he heavy metal contamination. Uh, so let's set that aside. I know there's other ways to vape besides the disposable vape cartridges. But regarding bad cannabis products in the supply chain, uh, this is a product of prohibition, not a product of legalization. Because we have a spotty uh, legalization system in, in America where some states are legal and some states aren't, most states are legal and a, in a few remaining laggard states are not. The uh, cannabis products available in some prohibited places are diverted cannabis products from legal states. This is obvious. Like Colorado and California are sending pounds and pounds and tons and tons of marijuana products into prohibited states. This is just what happens in a marketplace. Uh, but what happens is that because these states that have legal uh, cannabis operations have um, testing schemes in place, uh, cannabis products that don't that aren't going to that aren't going to pass muster under those uh, state tests um, that are bad for whatever reason, those are the products that, that get diverted into the black market and sent to prohibited states. So the spotty prohibition scheme in America is what makes the cannabis supply chain uh, unsafe and potentially hazardous. It's not cannabis or legalization. It's prohibition that's bad. Until recently, the FDA prohibited most at-home COVID tests, even the ones proven both safe and effective. But why? Nita Farahani directs the Duke University Initiative for Science and Society. She joined Cato's Dr. Jeffrey Singer at the event Defending Our Right to Test. Farahani describes the FDA's broad authority and propensity to restrict medical devices, even when it obstructs individuals from obtaining information about their own health status. And I'm delighted for us to be talking about what I think is really a crucial topic, which is um, what is the role of the FDA and what is the role of the individual in being able to make autonomous choices about their health and their well-being? And fundamentally, what is our right to access information about ourselves? Um, so if you look at the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, it has um, the authority for the FDA, which is really quite broad, to be able to regulate medical devices. Um, and most tests, whether it's a COVID test or another kind of test falls under medical devices. Um, generally it's because uh, they are kits, um, they involve different reagents or other kinds of um, equipment that when combined together uh, are administered in order to be able to um, diagnose, uh, treat, uh, or prevent some kind of a disease. And so broadly under the 1976, um, amendments to the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, which gives the FDNCA broad authority over uh, medical devices. They have the power and the authority to regulate the safety and efficacy of those devices. And devices are generally classified based on uh, the kind of risk that they pose. And so 
There are class one, class two, and class three devices. Class one devices are generally those devices that are considered the safest devices and they're permitted to uh, be on the market um, with generally just pre-market notification, but not um, strict regulatory oversight. Um, class two devices uh, generally go through something called uh, substantial equivalence. That is, they get approval to be on the market based on the fact that they're substantially equivalent to some other existing device that's on the market. And then class three devices are those devices that are brand new. That is, they um, don't have a corollary that exists on the marketplace. And so they require a much more extensive process of review by the FDA in order to be approved. Um, and that's that review and approval generally requires that they go through things like clinical testing and um, provide evidence of their safety and efficacy. What's at issue, I think, here is a, a couple of ways in which the FDA thinks about regulating devices. The first is the risk that the device poses to the individual. And in general, if you're talking about at-home testing, there's very little risk, right? Doing a nasal swab has very little physical risk to you. Um, and so, the FDA generally looks to say um, there's a couple of different issues that they might have. They might have concerns about the analytic validity of a test before allowing it to be on the marketplace. That is, if it says that you're positive for a test, is it accurately reporting um, that positivity? Uh, and then the clinical validity, which is um, it might get like a DNA sequence right, but then is the interpretation that the device manufacturer is providing, um, is that also a valid interpretation that can be provided? So that's the basics of FDA regulatory approval, but the biggest issue, the thing that we really have to focus our, our conversation on is FDA's authority to regulate devices based on safety and efficacy. And if safety is about making sure that the devices don't harm you, um, does that include whether or not it psychologically harms you. That is, is the information somehow something that's harmful? And does the FDA have the right to regulate information and to protect your psychological well-being and psychological welfare at this very kind of paternalistic notion? Or if a device is proven to be safe from the perspective of it poses very little physical, if any, risk to you, and it's proven to be efficacious, that is, it has appropriate analytic validity, it you know, if it says that you have the following genetic sequence or it says that there is the presence of the following kind of antibody in your blood or the kind of um, antigen which would suggest the presence of something like SARS-CoV-2 uh, is the clinical interpretation, that is that you're positive for uh, infection or that you're positive for some interpretation of a genetic variation, um, is that also efficacious? And if we limited what the FDA did to ensuring the validity of tests, but not trying to regulate the psychological well-being of individuals, I think there are very few tests that um, the FDA would likely restrict under its, uh, under its authority. What I find particularly offensive was um, that back uh, in, I think it was 1988, when the, there was just huge death rates from HIV, um, several companies had developed at-home tests for HIV. Uh, originally, these were at-home tests that you could take a sample and then send it in to be evaluated, but they actually came out with kinds that um, that you could do the whole test on your own at home. And I think it was up until the mid-1990s that the FDA wasn't even allowing applications for, for these tests to get approved 
they were they were not accepting them. They they basically banned companies that had developed at home tests from submitting these tests for FDA approval. And the reasoning they gave was that well, we're concerned that if somebody learns that they have HIV, um, they may get so depressed they're liable to instead of seeking medical attention, they're liable to do something like take their own life. Uh, and think about how many how many lives probably. Uh, were lost because of that. But aside from that, to, to me, it offends. It's, I find it offensive that that they're judging, um, you know, they, they're basically dis- deciding for people how they should use the information um, as opposed to letting them get the information. Uh, Nito, t- tell us, you were nodding your head when I was saying that. Maybe you could elaborate on that. I think it's useful to put out what some of the best arguments are in favor of, uh, of of why people think it makes sense to have some regulation with respect to at home testing. Yeah, be good. I yeah. likewise I likewise find it um, deeply problematic to to limit it and, and and think that there are significant public health implications. Um, some of it is this you know risk of psychological harm. People are afraid that somebody will react in a way uh, that is disproportionate to the information. Um, you know you see the same thing when Twenty Three and Me received some of its earlier. Uh, and very stringent warning letters from the FDA that um, required that it stop marketing uh, the clinical interpretations of the variants that it was reporting on. Um, one of the concerns that it expressed was a reporting on uh, on BRCA1 and BRCA2, uh, the, the genetic predisposition to breast cancer. And they said something to the effect that they were worried that people would go out and have double mastectomies um, in response to the information which by the way, wouldn't be utterly irrational if, if that did happen in certain instances. Um, Angelina Jolie did that based on family history and in consultation with her physician. And it also uh, really sells people short in the idea that that's something, you know, I, I'm not gonna lop off my breasts on my own. I'm gonna go consult with my physician and get information. Um, but a second reason really is, is an education reason, which is um, there's a fear that people may not have adequate information to be able to interpret tests and interpret the results. And so, you know, just by way of example, uh, if you have your hemoglobin tested um, and, you know, it's slightly outside the reference range, um, if you have training as a medical physician, you may understand that those slight variations don't actually mean much, if at all. Uh, and that, you know, a little point here, a little point there may just be a variation in testing or what you ate or something like that. But we're really looking at more major deviations from the norm to determine whether or not somebody has an abnormal test. And so there's this fear that people have a lack of adequate information to be able to appropriately interpret the tests. But again, I don't think that the answer then is to prohibit any um, access to the test. It suggests that we need to offer much greater education and resources and materials to enable people to make informed choices and informed decisions. And if you're talking about something like uh, a SARS-CoV-2 test, um, a COVID test, you know, there's there's a few potential rationale for not making access available to individuals. One is, of course, the major shortage of the tests. Um, and that is a problem, right? There's a public health rationale for trying to have, um, you know, kind of the highest and best use of tests in, a, in an instance of restricted resources. A second is there is a high... Um, likelihood, or not a high likelihood, but there's there's differences of sensitivity and specificity of these tests that have received emergency use authorization. They haven't been fully validated yet. And so there's this fear that people will act inappropriately based on that information. That is, um, they may, in fact, be positive if they have a false negative and stop doing things like social distancing or wearing masks or other best practices because they don't know what the full context is. Um, or they may 
know that they're positive and continue to um, interact with other people, uh, choose to ignore the results and the risks for other people. And in a time of a public health crisis, maybe we do need some way to ensure that there's notification of public health officials if we want to have a society in which this kind of communitarian ethic of, of trying to bring the pandemic under control based on shared information and reporting exists. So I think there are some decent arguments um, about uh, a need for greater education, a need uh, for the distribution of resources to the kind of highest and best use in a time of a global pandemic, and this kind of complicated question of how do you address the fact that there may be at-home testing where individuals gain information that we might need access to in a public health setting to be able to act um, in the best interests of the community writ large. But I don't think the answer to that is to restrict any potential access for individuals. I think it's to do things like massively increase the availability of testing, to increase education and resources to individuals to make informed choices. And then we have to figure out the harder uh, answer, which is if we have easy, rapid at-home tests, is there a right to access that information by public health officials um, in a time of a global pandemic? And how would we make that happen? Why do you think that the uh, uh, FDA didn't, the, the first two tests that are at-home tests, they required a prescription, even though one of them uh, has an app that informs uh, public health officials. And then the third one, Illuma, um, they don't require a, a prescription. Why do, you, why do you think that is? So I haven't looked at the specifics to figure out the distinction between the two. My guess would be a difference in uh, expected interpretation of the test. Uh, that is um, how to administer and how to um, how to interpret the information that you receive. Uh, you know, if you take a saliva test, for example, it's quite easy to administer. Um, if it's something like a pregnancy test where it's just one line means it's negative and two lines means it's positive. That's very easy to interpret for the at-home user. Uh, so it, you know, it could be as simple as a matter of what they thought was easier to administer and interpret, uh, and therefore um, easier for at-home users to not have to go through the prescription. Um, and you know, the alternative would be uh, that it was done in order to um, ensure that there was the the paternalistic touch of the physician in, engaged. That uh, you know, you um, have to go through the physician to get the information. Presumably the physician gets access to the information about whether or not you've tested positive. That could go back into the public health information and inform public health officials uh, or also, you know, give you access to a physician who could advise you about the medical care that you needed to receive, if any, or the steps that you needed to take next, if any, uh, after receiving a positive, um, a positive test. Yeah, and, and but ironically, in the in the case of the first one, the Lucera, um, according to the FDA's instructions, after you get the prescription, you don't need to be at the doctor's office. You can go ahead and take the test on your own because you it's designed for you to do this without any professional helping you. Right. So it's almost right, like but, you just need a permission a from a screener. Right. But there's there's a difference, right, between somebody knowing. Uh, that you have a test and being able to inquire and saying like, hey, what what were the test results that you received versus being able to anonymously go to a store and, and gain access to that information. And that was part of what was involved in the HIV tests as well. There was a worry, not just that people would psychologically, um, you know, make decisions or commit suicide as a result of the information that they received. There was also um, this belief that potentially 
there wasn't a right to anonymously have access to information about whether what your HIV status was, that perhaps um, given the uh, public health dimensions of being HIV positive, that there was a right of others to um, have access to that information as well. And, you know, and that's, that's, that's more complicated, that's difficult, right? right? In, in the middle of a pandemic of a highly contagious uh, um, virus, you know, is there a right to anonymously know that you have SARS-CoV-2 uh, and to then go about and engage in public in any way that you wish and see fit if you receive that positive diagnosis or is there some right um, of knowledge on the part of the community to know that you are positive and therefore to regulate your movements and your actions? What is a process that might change the FDA's restrictions around at-home COVID testing and the obtaining of the corresponding results? So, you know, part of what slowed down at-home testing to begin with is the ability to have rapid results, right? Which is a PCR test, which you have to amplify with a machine that you have that, you know, nobody's going to have at home or have access to at home. Um, meant earlier in the pandemic, it really just wasn't an option to have availability of at-home testing. And what everybody thought was going to be the game changer was when there could be basic antigen testing. But finding the antigens that could be reliable indicators of SARS-CoV-2 didn't prove to be that easy either, and they weren't as sensitive. Um, and a, a second piece of that is uh, is how you obtain the test, which is there was a belief that a nasopharyngeal swab, you know, kind of had to go up the nasal cavity, really had to be administered by a health professional versus a saliva test which could be easily administered at home. Um, so I think early investments, which really did happen here, early investments in trying to find antigens and alternative you know, saliva-based tests that could work um, is, is part of what we need to hope for. We need simple tests that give rapid results and give them with easily administered modalities that can be delivered at home. But it's also clear that in this country, you know, uh, that the priority was not on testing and developing testing kits. Um, and the, the resources and the limitations, whether it's, you know, availability of the pipettes or the nasopharyngeal swabs or the PPE equipment that was necessary to administer those tests, you know, none of the necessary massive scale up of investments to make that possible were happening. And so, you know, I think it's understandable that there was a lag before we had access to home testing. But at this point, it's it's there. There really is very little justification for not putting a tremendous amount of resources into having those tests because it's not just at-home testing, right? Public schools throughout the country are still closed, and rapid, easily administered tests could enable those schools to open. Um, and you know, it, it's it's recognizing that the investments in point-of-care testing um, and easily administered tests are fundamental to us being able to restore any kind of normalcy in our lives at this point. Fusionism is an idea that once held great promise, separate the public and private spheres of our existence so that libertarians and conservatives can get along and work together to battle much bigger problems. But fusionism died, sort of. For the Cato Daily Podcast, Stephanie Slade of Reason discussed her recent essay on fusionism's past, present, and future. 
the notion that uh, I hear from some conservatives, I think more recently, is uh, they conflate libertarians with libertines and have this idea in their heads that libertarianism by its very nature endorses uh, fully uh, reprobate behavior. This is why I think the word fusionism actually is quite valuable to have in our vocabulary, because it's certainly the case that there are libertarians who believe that, who who don't just say that you know we want a, a government that exists to protect individual liberty, but who might go farther uh, further than that and say, um, and also we celebrate all lifestyle choices equally, and we don't believe that they're you know we sort of don't have this sort of this. Um, traditionalist conception of virtue and that sort of thing. But many libertarians do fall into that camp, but I don't deny it. I work with, I work alongside some of them. I mean, we should note that your article appears uh, in an issue of Reason Magazine with not one, not two, but three separate articles about hallucinogenic mushrooms. Right. Well, it's a big deal. Hallucinogenic mushrooms have now been legalized for the first time in parts of the United States. So we wanted to mark that occasion. Um, but that's sort of what I'm getting at, is that within the libertarian big tent, um, you do have some people who disagree about the importance of traditional um, religious values and, and virtue in this sort of traditional sense. Um, we don't all agree. And so it's helpful to be able to say that there is one of the ways to be a libertarian is to be a sort of fusionist libertarian. And that's what I am um, as a you know practicing Catholic. Um, I, I believe that virtue is really important and virtue in not the sort of modern leftist um, woke sense, but in the sort of classical Judeo-Christian sense. Um, and, and yet I can still be a libertarian because I, I feel very strongly and I'm very insistent on the fact that we must pursue that on our own and not try to impose it upon other people using the coercive arm of the state. So uh, this new thing, which I, I'm hesitant to say that it's new, this idea of sort of a post-liberal conservatism, these nationalist conservatives have this idea that, uh, or it, it seems that they put liberty and virtue as competing, uh, that they, they are not complements in any substantial way. Uh, how big of an idea was that in, say, the 1980s when Bill Bennett was holding sway in the White House and uh, you had a lot of sort of the moral majority uh, Republicans running things? You're right. This isn't new. And even going back to uh, the 50s and 60s, in the pages of National Review magazine, you had Frank Meyer, the sort of considered the godfather of fusionism. He was the, the literary editor of National Review. And you had L. Brent Bozell who was William F. Buckley's brother-in-law, debating in the pages of National Review about whether fusionism was even coherent. And Frank Meyer said yes, and he laid it out. And Brent Bozell said, no, we're not. the government doesn't just exist to protect individual liberty. The government exists to make us a moral people and to, to promote and um, you know, protect. And, um, and again, not just carve out space so that people can be moral, but also to like teach and train us to be moral. Um, and so they were debating, even you know, go back even further than that, you had Russell Clark pushing something of more like uh, what we would consider today to be a post-liberal conservative position. But what I would say is that for, for decades, um, for, for decades going back at least to the, the launching of National Review in the 50s, that this William F. Buckley, Frank Meyer fusionist position that really did believe in limited government 
minimal government and and sort of the virtue component being reserved to the private sphere was the the preeminent or the predominant um, understanding of what it meant to be a conservative in America. Not not the European style conservatism, but the uniquely American style conservatism was by its very nature fusionist. Um, and that I think is is a thing that we have seen that consensus that that's what it means to be an American conservative has be- begun to break down in the last few years, especially you know exacerbated by the election of Donald Trump in 2016. So clearly not that type of conservative. It, it's odd that we saw a, a rise of sort of a post-liberal conservatism that is at least among some intellectuals, not necessarily in in the broad public, but a conservatism that. Uh, wants to use a more muscular conservatism, as as uh, it's described in in your piece. Uh, at the same time, you have a president who breaks all norms of what Republicans traditionally held out as good people uh, that we want in political office. Yeah, one of the great ironies of the Trump era has been this. The, the cognitive dissonance of the types of people who supported Donald Trump being disproportionately those who claim to believe that, you know, traditional values and, and religion um, were important. Um, but I actually think there's this kind of gets to this new idea of um, of barstool conservatism that has become all the rage in the last couple of weeks. Um, it, there is, I think, some truth to the um, to the idea that the thing that actually held the Trump coalition together far, far more than any kind of coherent economic policy agenda um, was a sense of people like me are under attack. Um, people who believe what I believe are under attack, people who look like I look. Um, and and this, is, this is sort of the backlash, I think, to runaway political correctness and to Obama era, era government assaults, perceived, but I think correctly perceived, as government assaults on uh, religious liberty. So you have the government saying, you know, Catholic nuns have to pay for birth control and you have the government, you know, sort of handing down policy that caused uh, uh, implementing or imposing uh, what's what's seen as sort of anti-American or, um, you know, there's no patriotism in our school curriculums. And there's there's this is this is a, a problem that causes a vast swath of Americans to feel like they and the things that they believe in value are being are, are under assault and that that actually far more than a desire to like see um, trade shut down or you know more tariffs imposed is what motivated the Trump coalition. I, I think I've I kind of been saying that for a while, but I, I think we're there's more and more evidence over time that that's true. And, and in fact, just last week, the Ethics and Public Policy Center put out a, a new poll. It took just of Trump Trump voters, 2020 Trump voters, and I was amazed. I mean, I was really I thought it was very interesting that. There was only like 35% of them said, and these are Trump people who actually voted for Trump in 2020, said America should reduce its trade with foreign um, foreign countries, for example. But like 92% of them said it's a huge problem that the mainstream media is basically an arm of the Democratic Party. So, so you can kind of see that, the, that the, the, the idea that the Trump coalition was primarily motivated by economic policy, I think was is not, there's not much evidence actually that that's true. So it's owning libs? I mean, that is definitely a big part of it. It is. And, and I'm, it's easy to be dismissive of that. And I often am frustrated by the way, you know, cry more libs or, 
you know, you liberal snowflakes are abandoned about online. But the truth is these people are, they are, it is a backlash. They are reacting to a real phenomenon, which is that these, there really were these policies and this sort of shift in the culture that caused a lot of people to feel like, why, when did I become the enemy in America? So uh, going forward then, um, to the extent that national conservatism sticks around and I, I don't know how you feel about that. I, I think it's probably an even money proposition whether or not it uh, persists as uh, or even arrives in a sense as a uh, political force to be reckoned with. Uh, what do you think the future of fusionism is? is? Is there a need to reestablish this understanding between public and private spheres about what government ought to do and uh, are mainstream conservatives or more broadly Republicans actually amenable to that? You're right. I, I totally agree that it's an open question, that this is a debate and a sort of battle that's going to be waged in real time, you know, going forward. Um, and I don't have a strong, although the, the, the title of the article that we're discussing is like, is there a future for fusionism? Everybody keeps asking me, so what's your answer? Is there a future for fusionism? And I don't know the answer to that question. I think it's an open question. I really hope there is. I think that the fusionist um, understanding of, again, of what sort of conservatism in America has been all along, um, it, it's the best possible way forward for the Republican Party and the conservative movement. I, I really hope that the fusionists are successful and that the economic nationalists, the sort of big government conservative populists are not successful. But there is a lot of sort of power. There's like a lot of money and a lot of attention currently being um, lining up behind these new, these these sort of new think tanks and magazines. And you have the Orrin Cass, who was interestingly previously Mitt Romney's economic advisor, who has now started a, a group called American Compass that is pushing, explicitly pushing, not just economic nationalism, but industrial policy. In his own words, he says, we are in favor of industrial policy. That is to say, we want the federal government spending money to try to prop up American industry in the face of foreign competition. Um, and he's getting a lot of attention, including a profile in the you know, New York Times Magazine last year. So I'm not saying for sure that the fusionists are going to win. I'm just saying that I think that this is, that this is not over in the way that some people who said Trump's victory in 2016 proved that um, libertarianism is dead and fusionism is over forever. I don't think that's, I think that's going too far. There is one thing that makes me think that uh, this national conservatism is going to go away, which is that every time I've seen an interview or read somebody pushing back uh, in real time against uh, one of these folks who believes in this more muscular uh, big government for conservative ends uh, idea, it seems that they're not super clear on how policymaking really works. I don't, I don't mean to generalize too much, but every time I've seen those kinds of discussions fold out, uh, unfold, it, it strikes me that maybe they don't really get how DC works. Yeah, that may be true. Um, I was just having a conversation with a friend about um, Section 230, this tech, tech regulation that many of these post-liberal, you know, economic nationalist conservatives, they they hate Section 230 because they say um, it gives technology platforms the right to downplay or censor or disadvantage conservative speech. 
But the truth is, I think, and, and this is the point I made to my friend, that uh, Section 230 is, is the law that basically says that a platform like Twitter or Facebook is not liable for user-generated speech. If, if somebody commits a crime, you know, commits a libel uh, and posts it on Twitter, Twitter isn't the one that's liable. The, the user who posted the speech is liable. And if they did get rid of Section 230 and they got rid of that protection, that liability protection, um, the result would be for these for these social media platforms to just go away. And that's not going to happen, of course. What's going to happen is you're going to see crony capitalist, you know, meeting of the minds where the, the big tech owners, the, the big tech platforms partner with lawmakers in order to write regulations that protect incumbent businesses at the expense of new businesses. It, um, and so that is not the, that is not at all what people who say Section 230 is evil. We need to we need you know we need to get rid of Section 230. They're not talking about what's actually going to happen if they start regulating this, which is not they're they're not, not going to eliminate Section 230 and therefore shut down all of these uh, all of these platforms. You're going to end up with more crony capitalism and less competition in the tech sector that, as opposed to more competition. What is the thing that makes you think that fusionism is going to come back? Aside from your own study of it itself, like I said, I'm not necessarily betting my life savings on on the fusionist winning. I'm 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 hopeful. I'm perhaps more bullish, I think, than some about this. Um, bec- for a few for a few reasons. One is that I actually really do believe um, that again, what it means to be um, a conservative in the United States of America is very different from what it means to be a conservative um, in other parts of the world. And it, there, there's a, there are some famous quotes. Um, I think it was H.G. Wells who said something like, he wrote like, uh, the thing about Americans is that they're all liberals. The conservatives are liberals and the, the progressives are progressives are liberals, right? Because what he meant was in America, we care so much about individual liberty. Even the most conservative Americans are, we, uh, it's our, it's our patrimony. It's what, it's what the country was founded on is breaking away and, and um, breaking away from, from authority and monarchy and um, establishing self-government and that sort of thing. And so it infuses our politics, whether you're left, right, or center, that, that liberalism, that tolerance, that ability to, um, to hold multiple ideas in your mind at one time um, and not necessarily want to, to shoot or imprison anybody who disagrees with you is a very American, you know, it's a very American um, ethos or mindset. And so that makes me think that it would be harder to kill, you know, than, than some of these post-liberal conservatives maybe are betting on. In a new book by Cato scholar Ryan Bourne, Economics in One Virus, an introduction to economic reasoning through COVID-19, brings to life some of the most important principles of economic thought, drawing on the dramatic events of last year. This book gives readers a crash course in the subject through the applied case study of the COVID-19 pandemic to help explain such things as why the United States was underprepared to respond and how economists go about valuing the lives saved from lockdowns. Economics in One Virus is available now to pre-order through online retailers and available in stores nationwide in April. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.